Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, you guys. Warm spring weather is right around the corner. I just know it. I just know it is. And breeders are starting to plan their litters for the year. So visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PureDogTalk to take $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. The Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit tests for more than 210 genetic health conditions, highlights breed-specific results, includes more than 35 traits, these are things like coat color and body size, and it's the only DNA test to use to get your genetic COI score. Embark also provides breeders with a suite of tools in their My Embark online experience with DNA health summary reports, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and group tags for your dog's profiles so you can sort by sire and dam, litter, health status, any tags you want to create. Find out why responsible breeders trust Embark to enhance their breeding program. Right now, you can save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit. Just visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PureDogTalk. Take $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PureDogTalk. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm pretty excited, you guys. We have a very, very cool conversation for you today. We are talking about sciencey stuff. We have absolutely some amazing medical advancements, and I'm being joined by Adam Boyko from Embark and Denise Flame, who is a Rhodesian Ridgeback breeder and fancier, and she was involved in the initiation of the research into EOAD. And I think that this breakthrough that Embark has acquired is pretty amazing. So Denise, I'm actually going to start with you and have you lead us into talking about what EOAD is, how it affects the Ridgebacks, and sort of how you guys look to find a genetic solution that has ended up now with Embark discovering the genetic cause that they can identify even before the condition develops. So EOAD is early onset adult deafness. Yes. And it's a form of deafness that's not related to color. So many breeds like Dalmatians, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the way the white overlays the cochlea impacts deafness. No, this is just a simple autosomal recessive inherited the same way brown nose color is. And if you have two copies of this recessive gene, if you're a Ridgeback, you become deaf. The interesting thing in Ridgebacks is these puppies are born hearing. So if you are a breeder who wants to do your due diligence and bear test your puppies at eight weeks, they'll all hear. What then begins to happen is they start to go progressively 
deaf, the males quickly, usually by six months, are completely deaf. And the bitches can take from 12 to 18 plus months. Wow. And so, I mean, we all know Ridgebacks have somewhat to be a little bit facetious, selective hearing occasionally. And so as a breeder, how do you start to identify that and differentiate between the dogs giving me the finger and it really actually has a problem? I'm going to answer you facetiously, but it's really not facetious. (laughs) You open the refrigerator door. (laughs) But what's interesting about this is also, and this is anecdotal. I don't think there's been any science done on this, but Mm. the dogs can hear it seems incredibly high pitched and incredibly loud noises. And that's probably because they could hear it one time. And there are probably some receptors around that will pick up those very high noises. So this is why a lot of owners, believe it or not, will miss this because number one, the dogs are super intelligent. And if there's a hearing dogs in the household, a lot of times the deaf dog will follow those dogs lead and you know given the breed's reputation for stubbornness and self-direction people just assume that they're just being jerks but if you're opening the refrigerator door and your ridgeback sound asleep or you call your ridgeback's name your ridgeback doesn't wake up chances are pretty good that of course then at that point you bear test and definitively get a diagnosis and so talk a little bit before i get to adam's conversation about the development of this test. Can you talk about the breeding implications of having a test that is available now for dogs that are even at risk before they're affected? How much more flexibility does it give your breeding program? We assume a great deal. Well, obviously we no longer have to breed carriers together mistakenly Right. You know, you identify if your dog is a carrier or not. And if your dog is a carrier, you simply don't breed it to another carrier and you're free and clear. And this is a really important point because the tendency among dog breeders, especially those who want to be really, really virtuous and really, really ethical is to say, oh, I'm going to identify all these carriers and get them out of my breeding program, which is, of course, what you don't want to do. You certainly don't want to increase the frequency of this gene in the population. But what you want to do is manage it. Because the thing is, you know, it's never what you know. It's always what you don't know. It's never what you worry about. It's always what you don't worry about. So, yes, great. We've got this marker for deafness. But that deafness carrier you're throwing out of your breeding program may not carry for a really devastating disease for which we don't have a test. So, like anything, moderation and taking the bigger view is really important. So, Adam. Yep. Elaborate for me on the work that Embark did to advance the research. And I know there's a little backstory to this and some of the work that you put in to identify the specific genetic variant that's associated with this type of hearing loss and how using that backstory, the ways that you were able to right. collaborate with the Ridgeback Club of the United States, with Project Dog, with Dr. Neff, all of that kind of, it's a fabulous story. That's right. That's right. So, you know, Project Dog started working with breeders like Denise and recruited a whole bunch of samples and was able to find an associated region, but sequencing of a deaf dog didn't yield any candidate variants that were causing the mutation. And so you're sort of stuck in this world. Do we want to offer a linkage-based test, which we know probably isn't going to be 100% accurate, or do we wait until we can find a mutation test? You know, and of course, you know, for a while, it was just a linkage mm-hmm. test was all that could be offered. 
So Embark came onto the scene. We, of course, have a large database of dogs, of Ridgebacks and others. And so we were able to recruit more cases, more controls. We were able to verify the association that Project Dog found. It's like, yeah, this is definitely, it's on chromosome 18 right here. There had been advances in the genomics. We put some scientists on it, newer reference genomes that closed some of the gaps that we had. We had to do a bunch of lab work because there's some tricky regions of the genome, which is why just a shotgun approach wasn't covering the regions that we really needed to have covered. And sure enough, a mutation did find itself, and it was in a gene EPS8L2, which was a fantastic gene because it's also associated with early onset deafness in humans in recessive forms. Oh, interesting. So, you know, this was great, but the mutation had never been seen before. And so now with our database, we could go back and we could say, hey, you know, this linkage test that Project Dog developed had some predictiveness in Rhodesian Ridgebacks, but it would generate a whole bunch of false positives in other breeds where you don't have this deafness, but they're still carrying a marker. But when we look at this variant that we think is a causal variant, it's in a coding region, it's changing the protein structure of this gene that we know is associated with deafness. We never see it outside of Ridgebacks and Ridgeback mixes and it perfectly segregates Hmm. with the disease. So it's really strong evidence and it's a much stronger test now that can be offered as a panel test with all of the other tests that are offered by Embark. And so it's really... I think a great example of, you know, using genomics to tackle what are pretty tricky things, even for a relatively simple Mendelian disorder. Right. One of the things that's really impressive to me is the ability to take what was initiated by Denise and the health committee and worked on and then develop it further. And is that just simply due to like, we know more now, like, you know, more, you do more, you know, better, you do better. Is that basically (laughs) the thing? Yeah, I mean, genomics technology is improving. So there was more of the gene that we had in the reference genome that we could look at. Embark, of course, has been hiring a lot of scientists and engineers. And so we finally had the bandwidth that we could do the wet lab work that was needed. And we had the samples in hand because of people like Denise that had been working with the scientists at Project Dog and have been collecting these for a while. And so, you know, Embark's interested in a whole bunch of different diseases, but this kind of leapfrogged to the front of the queue because we had these samples available and we felt like, you know, surely it's there. We just have to look at the right genomic region and then squeeze the database to show that we are getting the segregation that we're expecting, which we weren't getting with the linkage test earlier. Interesting. And this is a test that's now available. So yep. every Ridgeback and Denise, help me and Adam, between the two of you, you can help me understand the release that I saw about it. If I own a Rhodesian Ridgeback that was tested prior to this, what happens? Does this just automatically update or how does that work? So it depends when the Ridgeback was run. So we updated our platform in December to include this mutation. And then, you know, we spent six weeks just validating, make sure all of the samples that we knew were obligate carriers, affected, clear, were segregating the right way to do that validation. And so now, you know, that test has gone live as of February. Mm-hmm. And anybody that was run from late December on, of course, that mutation test was run as part of the panel. But if dogs run... Previously, that was on an older chip that didn't have that test and a few other tests that we're working on validating and adding. Okay. So if I own that dog that was tested in November of 21, I call you up and say, give me a new test, or I'm just trying to get the information for the owners. That's right. So if you reach out, there is a reduced price upgrade where, I mean, it's a whole new swab. It's a whole new chip. Like the whole laboratory process is the same, but of course we want to 
give conscientious breeders, you know, a discount. We know they already tested once, but if you really need this result, that's the way to get it. It's an $80 charge. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And Denise, I assume the ruckus has got this information out to breeders so that they know that this is available. Well, yeah. Breeders have been doing what it says in the press release, which is to call. And I think it's really interesting because purebred dog breeders are just a segment of what Embark does and we're not the main thrust. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you look at those two markets, because what pet people want is, I want to know everything about my dog. The more information, the better. And as a breeder, I don't want it. You know, the more information you give me, the more paralysis I experience. (laughs) You know, like, what am I supposed to care about? And just philosophically, I think we're going to be in need of as these tests become more sophisticated. I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to find in here. There are going to be things that I'm sure I've never heard of or thought about. I think we're going to need some kind of genetic counseling for breeders eventually. I know you're, you're laughing, but I think down the line. I feel like I need psychological counseling occasionally. Because are we going to get yeah. to a point where we know so much about our dogs that we're going to be completely paralyzed? Right. Because you do this and you get that and you do this and you get that. And Adam and Eve were a lot happier before they bit into that apple. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm a Luddite, you know, I don't want to know. I do want to know. But the next step is, what do we do with all this? Right. So, Adam, there you go. What do we do with all this? Well, it's just going to keep gaining steam. There's more and more research and there's more and more discoveries that go on. The way I look at it is we're going to discover lots of different Mendelian disorders. And pretty soon we're going to be at the point where nobody wants a list of all the things that a dog carries for. They just want to have the check mark whether or not there's any two shared carrier statuses before they do the breeding. And nope. Okay, great. We'll go for it. You know, and that kind of then moves away from the problem of, oh, you know, we're only going to breed stuff that's clear for everything because nobody's going to be clear for everything. I mean, you and I aren't clear for everything. Exactly. (laughs) So in that sense, we're going to have to modify things. And if you look at what's going on in cattle, and I don't think we want to do selection the exact same way as they do it in cattle at all, but, you know, they're clearly further along with genomic testing. They check to make sure the carrier status isn't shared with any of the two cattle, but then they're also monitoring breeding values for various different conditions for what they're trying to select for Mm -hmm. and what they're trying to remove, as well as maintaining genetic diversity. And so having a large pool of genotype Mm -hmm. animals along with the breeding values based on those genetics, I think is going to be the key next step in dog breeding for breeds that decide to go through and work with the genetic testing companies to figure out, okay, you know, this is great. There's 12 different Mendelian conditions that I'm testing for that I can try to avoid, but you know, I really want to reduce the prevalence of cancer. I really want to reduce the prevalence of hip dysplasia. Like you're not carrying a cancer risk variant. You just have dogs that are more prone or less prone and are going to pass that on to their offspring. And you want, and the breeder needs the tools to know which dogs are which so that mm-hmm. they can direct the breeding pool in the direction that they want to do. Could be hip dysplasia is not a big risk in our breed, but cancer is. And I really right. want to breed hard against that. Right. And that, to me, I think the future of propensity to develop cancer, propensity to develop an autoimmune disease, you know, that type of stuff and your guys' ability to find that, that yeah. makes me all wiggly. Like, right. <laughs> super exciting. Right. So this stuff. is the first step towards that. It right. requires really big data sets because it's very noisy. Right. These are complicated genetic conditions. We're figuring out how to do it in humans and figuring out how to do it in cattle. They've got the biggest data sets right now. I mean, that was basically the reason why we founded Embark is because we didn't see a way we would be able to generate the data sets that would build those kinds of tests unless you had a testing company because Morris Animal Foundation isn't going to fund it. National Institutes of Health isn't going to fund it. 
and it's not like cattle where you have individual that own a million head of dog, right? Like you're not, <laughs> none of us not, have that. It's not even going to be in, in the private sector. So we thought working with owners and breeders to develop this database and then attracting really great scientists and engineers to build those tests was the way that that was going to happen. And as a scientist, it's really exciting because I think we're going to learn a lot about cancer by studying dogs. I think we're going to learn a lot about behavior by studying dogs. I think we're going to learn a lot about longevity and aging. I love that. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. So Denise, I think another piece of this that's really an interesting piece is you referenced it, Adam just referenced it, the idea of national parent clubs, breed clubs, working with the testing companies and looking at, okay, what is the biggest issue in our breed? Can we talk about cancer? Can we talk about, you know, whatever? And those kinds of partnerships. Is there any advice that you would offer to parent clubs, to people involved, heavily involved in their breeds, health foundations or what have you, about how to go forward? Pitfalls to avoid, things to look for, ideas small bite of the apple. Talk to me. <laughs> well, just in terms of personal experience, you know, this whole deafness thing started in 2009 when we were working on some other projects. And I thought, hey, you know, we've got this deafness problem. We didn't call it EOAD then. And we just sort of went with the flow. And the one thing that we didn't do, which landed us due to no one's fault, because just people change jobs and things. If there's no clarity at the beginning, about, okay, we have this disease and we'll get you samples, but there's no clarity about sort of what are the parameters of this study? Who owns this DNA? Should somebody leave? That's really important. And I didn't know that then, but I know it now. And thankfully, you know, Embark, it all ended well. But I think it's really important to remember that we have organizations like AKC, CHF, where in the absence of a structured, well-thought-out agreement between a parent club and an entity, no matter what it is, AKCCHF can step in and can take a look at what's being proposed and can really make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And I think that's really, really important. The other thing is I really do think that the technology and the science is outpacing the education level of breeders. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that folks figure out how to do a Punnett square. You know, you would be amazed at how many breeders can't. And it's more of a mental block than anything. They just think, well, I'm not smart enough or what have you. But we're going to need these skills to really figure out and grapple with all this information that we're getting and we're drowning in. And Embark is an example. People will quote the coefficient of inbreeding of their dog from Embark. And they're thinking it's a pedigree-based coefficient of inbreeding, and it's not. 
And Embark explains it on their website if people put the time to read it. So if someone's freaking out because their dog has a COI of 52, well, that's not a pedigree. But I mean, you can have a COI of 52, but you know what I mean. Really, it's our responsibility right. to educate ourselves and not expect things to be yes. handed to us. And Embark, I think, has a really challenging job ahead of them because, as you and I both know, Every breed is its own country, is its own island, it's its own language. There are some shared values, but not you know universally. And every breed has its own health concerns, and every breed has its own attitude about health concerns. And so the yes. dialogue that has to happen has to be individualized to the breed. So Adam, talk about you guys really are thinking about what Denise is just talking about, and have added staff to address this particular area, working with specifically with parent clubs, yes? Right. So, you know, it's still, as Denise is saying, we can't work with every single parent club all at once. It's just too much of a cacophony. But we're getting to the point now where we can selectively take on projects like this. And we have a health survey that everybody takes an Embark test. We try to get them to do every single year. And I think that that's really important. But in some cases, there's breed-specific health concerns, and we're getting to the point now where we can reach out to certain subsets of customers, maybe dogs that are older than a certain age or dogs of a certain breed, and start to occasionally push out these specific surveys that will help accelerate certain research projects and collaborations that we have with academics and whatnot. So I think we're going to see a lot more of studies like this coming down the pike and discoveries being made. I love it. I love it. It's fabulous. It's sciencey <laughs> stuff. I told you guys. Can I just, off of what Adam's saying, you yep. know? I think there's a real opportunity for Embark to be a canary in the coal mine. And we talked about a year ago, Adam mentioned to, we had a meeting, some of the Ridgeback Club folks with Embark, and he talked about, they were noticing an incidence of exercise-induced collapse showing up. I think it was just mostly a handful of carriers. There were no dogs that were... We had no dogs that were homozygous. No dogs reporting any phenotypes, obviously, either. And so initially, before we had our meeting, we're like, what is this EIC thing? We don't know what it is. It happens to Labradors. It doesn't happen to Ridgebacks. People were seeing it on their tests and were advertising their dogs as EIC clear when we've never seen one case because as Adam points out, it's not so prevalent in the gene pool that we're even seeing affected dogs. And, you know, he brought up the point to us that we're just beginning to see this. And that's another, yet another question. What do you do with that information? You now have this Gene that showed up in the gene pool, I don't know how it got there, but it's a relatively new phenomenon. And so what do we do as a breed club, as a breed, do we say to people, hey, in this instance, because you've only got a handful of carriers, let's not breed them. Or, I mean, I don't know. You know, I I don't know what the answers are because they're very complex. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need some sort of a mechanism to really take a bird's eye view of what's going on genetically in our breeds and just figure out. You know, another thing that Ridgeback people are talking about showing up in their Embark results are DCM1, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is found in Dobermans. And we do have Doberman blood in certain segments of the breed population. NIH did a study that documented that. So we don't have Ridgebacks with DCM1 and it's multifactorial. I'm sure there are other factors that predispose you, but that mutation is one of them. What do we do with this? We don't have a problem yet, but what can we do with this information? Right. Is there a way, Adam, to have like a checkered flag go up, you know, when a certain percentage of tests start showing up something that hadn't been there before? I mean, that's a really fascinating concept as Embark being 
literally what Denise said, the canary in the coal mine that raises a flag when you right. start to have an issue. I mean, we certainly have flags when we start to see stuff where we didn't expect it. And we can reach out to owners or the breed club, mm-hmm. you know, if have questions about that. Right. Right. I see that being a breed club kind of thing, right? Overall, what we want to see is we want to see the owners and breeders filling out these health surveys so that we know, hey, we saw this and it's correlated or it doesn't seem to be correlated with health outcomes because okay. just mentioning that, hey, we're seeing this mutation. So that email I got, yeah, I yeah, should yeah. fill it out. Because otherwise we don't know. We don't know what it means. And, you know, in some cases when it's super rare and you haven't observed any dog that you would expect to be at risk, well, you're just in the, okay, well, we don't know what this means. We have a reason to believe that you probably don't want to breed carriers together that shouldn't reduce the diversity of your gene pool. It's just, hey, now you have this forewarning that you wouldn't have gotten before. And this has certainly happened in other breeds where it was a very low prevalence of something nobody ever tested for because they didn't know it was in that breed. They thought it was just in a different breed. But then eventually at some point, some popular sire was a carrier for it. And then a few generations later, you start seeing it popping up all over the place. And so you could have avoided that situation by just doing that comprehensive testing ahead of time. We should also point out that I think people get confused because using PRA as an example, Poodle PRA is different from Mastiff PRA because it's a different mutation. We're not talking about that. That's completely different. So from we're not talking PRA. about that. We're talking about the actual mutation that one would find in a Doberman Pinscher that has DCM is showing up in the Embark results of reducing right. Ridgebacks. So it's not like we can just say, "Oh, well, that's a Doberman right. thing," and wave it off. No, it's soon to become our thing. Right. Or, you know, theoretically, if we don't get a handle on it. And it's not just all or none either. You can look at mutations like the SOD1 DM Mm -hmm. mutation, and that is actually fairly penetrant in some breeds and not penetrant at all in other breeds and probably intermediate in some other. And unless you have a big database to know what's the overall prevalence in the breed and how predictive is this, you can't calculate the penetrance and sort of give a risk score, which is really, I think, what you want to do and let the breeders decide this is something that's important and we need to breed against in this breed versus there's a lot of other really important stuff in this breed and this isn't very predictive at all. You can't breed for everything, right? You have to choose what you're going to breed for. Yeah, you do have (laughs) to pick your battles. And I always advise people, I just was having a conversation with one of my patrons before I came in here talking about hip dysplasia and should she breed this mild and like, you got to decide, right? Is it life-threatening, not life-threatening? Is it a problem across the breed? You know, all of those things go into the decision-making process. And I love Denise's idea of genetic counseling. I'm on it. Pure Dog Talk, right. genetic counseling, upcoming. I think the other thing that's really important, somebody said this to me years ago, and they said it was a variant of something Nietzsche said. I don't know. It doesn't matter that we all do the right thing. It just matters that we don't all do the same thing. And if I'm prioritizing differently and you're prioritizing differently, and the corollary to this is line breeding, one of my favorite saws. I mean, if if you're line breeding on a different family of dogs and I'm line breeding on a different family of dogs, then we've maintained our genetic diversity, even though we're line breeding the dreaded L word or God forbid the I word. And breeding. Another show altogether. But I think that's really important. And I think as purebred dog clubs, we all want to be in lockstep. Let's do our code of ethics. Let's lock everyone in. Let's make sure everyone's not doing this or that. As things get more complex and as we get more information, that isn't always the best approach. I would agree with that. Right. Adam? I mean, so one thing is, for instance, inbreeding. If you're just looking at inbreeding and trying to breed dogs that have the lowest COI possible and you're not paying attention to anything else, that's not really very good. I would much rather see a breed where you have a little bit of line breeding in different lines and they're sort of 
being read right. towards different directions. And I mean, don't take it to the extreme, but that overall is probably going to be a healthier breed than the breed that is trying to maximize outcrossing. And now everything is kind of the same amalgam and you kind of lose the diversity of lines when you're doing that. So it's this kind of balance. And I think that outcrossing some of the lines makes sense, but you want people doing different stuff and seeing what works. Yeah. Right. And as I will always remind people, once you get far enough down on that low COI concept, your dog is no longer purebred. So there's that. We're not pushing it that far yet. So (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Phew. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating conversation. And I really, really, really appreciate everybody's time. So thank Thank you you guys. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Denise. You guys, I am so excited. I've been wanting to create a live call-in show forever. So finally, I decided to just do it. (laughs) Dog shows, dog grooming, dog handling, dog breeding, you name it. Join the conversation live and get trusted answers to all of your questions. No more Facebook groups, no more 20,000 answers to the same question, just solid knowledge. Amazing. Start planning now. Visit the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page for a link to our YouTube live lightning round with Laura. Be on the lookout for live chat opportunities, special guests, they'll be a secret, live calls from the audience, and more. Let's kick off the new year in pure dog talk style. Like the NPR of dogdom, pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 